0: As we've been reading, we are as a church, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be there for a long time. This is very important to us as we think well, this is our seventh week in existence as a church. And we are teaching slowly through the Sermon on the Mount because we want to ground ourselves in the teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus. Um, we were even talking this week with a, a few other a few other churches and some people who even noticed like that there seems to be like that God is just doing something just in our in our nation. Um, where a lot of churches that we're, like, involved with, a lot of people are going through the Sermon on the Mount. And it just seems to me that what, like, the Lord's doing is just kind of re-rooting us in the words of Jesus. When Jesus says, obey my commands, like, abide. And when you obey my commands, I'm like, we abide in the person of Jesus. And so that's one of the reasons why we're doing this, just to root ourselves in that. And we are slowly going through the Beatitudes. And even as Jake and Brooke um, were reading through that, um, reading through the blessings, I was just kind of struck, like how sometimes we can read those and we've heard them so often, right? They become just platitudes. They become um, something that we comes in one ear and out the other. When reality, when we read the beatitudes, when his first audience heard that, those words would have jolted them. Those words would have jolted his first hearers. What? like? These are the people that are blessed. These are the people like that God's favor is, is, is on and for, it would have shocked. Let's remember who Jesus is talking to. So if you have your Bibles open, we want to reground ourselves. Who is Jesus' audience that he's saying these words to? I think it might help us again. Um, remember it just like the starkness of his words. So just go up a little bit to Matthew 4 in, in your Bible. Matthew 4, 23, 25. This is right before Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this kind of gives us the context again of who is he talking to. So Matthew four twenty three through twenty five says this: Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, right, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those who were suffering in severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and those paralyzed, and he healed them. Verse 25 large crowds from Galilee, so that's the area where Jesus is from, the Decapolis, which is these 10 cities that were across the Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem the religious cultural hub, and Judea and the region across the Jordan, they all, what does it say? They followed him. Here are these people, these suffering, these demon-possessed, these paralyzed, and now healed, this crowd, this crowd everywhere from all over Israel, this is a crowd of nobodies. It's a crowd of outcasts, and Jesus sits down and teaches them, and said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's really difficult for us Westerners to wrap our minds around these nine Beatitudes because in our culture narrative of strength and power, when we read blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, it just doesn't make sense to us. We're not necessarily the right audience to hear it rightly. And so we usually try to make the Beatitudes a to-do list that we check off that we progress through or like it's a blog that Jesus wrote like the 10 ways to get blessed right like that's how we we usually read these kind of things but that's not what they are Jesus comes unexpectedly to the kingdom and and announces the kingdom to these people unexpectedly and so we want to sit in that we want to just kind of like be in awe again or shocked again of Jesus's words last week Nick taught through Matthew 5 verse 6 it's up on the screen Um, by the way did you love our lovely light in worship that was going nuts did anybody catch that I think I turned it off. I found that. And then we have a block on our screen. So that's just how it works today. Um, Way to roll the punches. Uh, Matthew 5, 6. uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And last week, Nick talked about that word righteousness. And what Jesus is doing here is he is dragging in two very important Hebrew words that, like, formed Jewish society and Jewish culture. Jesus is dragging in the words sadika and mishpat. You want to try it out this morning? You feel like that? Say "sadiqah." This one's a fun one. Mishpat. Mishpat. "Sadiqah" and mishpat, it means righteousness and justice. And when you're going through the Old Testament and you see righteousness and justice, you start seeing them together all the time. Righteousness and justice throughout the Old, Tenement, Old Testament encompass the right way to live with God and with neighbor. In the Hebrew mindset, righteousness is this covenant faithfulness to what God commanded through the law of Moses, and a covenant faithfulness to be about the work of Yahweh, bringing about shalom and God's peace and recovery to a broken world. Sadikah mishpat, righteousness and justice. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we should hear it, righteousness and justice. That's how his first audience would have heard that. And today our text is uh, Matthew 5, verse 7. It'll be up on the screen. Let's read it. Can we read it together? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's read it together, church. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The merciful. Blessed, happy are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Really, Jesus? I don't know about that. I mean, I watch the news and I'm on Twitter, um, and I see how the world works. It, doesn't, it, it looks like the merciful are the ones that get taken advantage, w- advantage of. It seems like the merciful are the weak ones. It doesn't seem to me that the merciful are blessed. It doesn't seem to me that mercy gets anything going in society. And isn't it true? Like our culture, our current moment does not value mercy. Mercy is not for the ones who win, right? It's the ruthless who win. It's those who say it as it is. It's those who make sure that everybody knows that they're right and you're wrong, right? That's what seems to make the world go round right now. That's what seems to get ahead in nowadays. But Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, Jesus says those who are merciful are blessed and they will receive mercy. Why? Why? Because the extent that we give mercy to others demonstrates that we are and can continue to be recipients of mercy. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we give mercy? And also, what does that mean for us to receive mercy? Because I think we all want to receive mercy. And we all know that giving mercy is difficult, right? That's difficult. So let's root ourselves in what Jesus is doing first Uh, We can't leave, we talked about Sadiqan Mishpat, right? We can't leave the fourth beatitude out of our view, hunger and thirst for righteousness, as we talk about blessed are the merciful. We've got to hold the fourth beatitude and the fifth beatitude together. Righteousness and justice and mercy. Jesus here is deliberately echoing a very famous Old Testament passage in Micah 6.8. If you can put it up there, Jordan. Micah 6.8 says this, you've heard this before. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Have you heard this first before? For this. Jesus is pulling both of these together. Micah here is summarizing the prophetic tradition, and Jesus is deliberately echoing this in the fourth and fifth beatitude. These go together. And when we hold righteousness and justice together with mercy, what do we get? Tension, right? We get tension. Can you feel it a little bit? Like when we hunger and thirst for the right ways of God and we hunger and thirst for justice, for the world to be put back to right where it's broken and wrong, but we do so, as Micah says, with, with mercy. And there's tension there. We need to sit in that tension sometimes. The mercy beatitude cannot stand by itself, but it must stand in tension with righteousness and justice. Without a commitment to justice, seeing the kingdom come to a broken world made right, mercy collapsed to just like a cheap sentiment, right? Kind of like a just be nice Christian. C.S. Lewis said, mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. Mercy isn't just about being nice or forsaking righteousness, but as long as there is justice in this world, there will be disagreements on what constitutes justice, right? We agree with that. There's disagreements there. How many of you know our world is broken? How many of you know, like, our city? There's, there, our city is broken. I mean, we just turn on the news today and, and look at social media for a moment, and we're flooded with stories of a new war. Poverty. Racism, starvation, disease, greed, sex trafficking, homelessness, and the list can go on and on and on. And every one of these issues, everybody in this room would have a vastly different opinion about righteousness and justice as we yearn for justice in these areas. And that's why, as apprentices of Jesus, we need some mercy. Thomas Aquinas said, justice without mercy is cruelty the tension of justice and righteousness, but that we do those as followers of Jesus with mercy. As Micah 6, 8 says, we act justly and we love mercy. So maybe it would be helpful to talk today just about what do we mean by mercy? Have you experienced mercy in your life? How do we define it? Let's start here. First, God is merciful. It's who he is. Mercy is rooted in the character of God. And I want to look at just one passage that just shows this. Exodus 34. Don't need to turn there. I'll have it on the screens. But maybe you'll remember this moment. It's after the Israelites have been freed from slavery in Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're going to meet God at Mount Sinai with Moses leading them there. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. What do the people do? They build a golden calf and start worshiping it. It gets crazy, right? Moses comes down, breaks the tablets, really mad, goes back up to meet with God. And God's basically like, I'm done with these people, right? Moses intercedes on their behalf. And then in that time, Moses asks to see God's glory. And God goes, you can't see my glory or you'll die. So what God does is he takes Moses, he puts him behind a cleft of a rock, he puts his hand over Moses. The scriptures say he passes over Moses and says, you can't see my face, but I'll show you my back. You can see my glory. It's a strange story, right? But this is what happens. God does this. Moses Moses sees God's glory, the back of his glory, and this is Yahweh revealing his name to his people. He's, in this moment, what he's saying is like, this is who I am this is the God I am. This is my character. This is my likeness. This is my glory. Um, George, go ahead and put this up there. So God passes by Moses, proclaims his name, his glory, and here's what it says in Exodus 34. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. The, what's the first word? Compassionate. And gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So much is happening in this. We can't dissect it all. But just for our sake today, as we talk about merciful, the first thing God says about himself is what word? Compassionate. It's the same word for mercy or merciful. Order is really important in the Hebrew mindset, and the first thing God reveals about himself is not that he will punish the children to their children, right? The first thing he says about himself is I'm compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, it means it, it takes a lot before God reaches anger. Abounding in love, faithfulness, maintaining love. He reveals himself to his people this way. Compassion and mercy, that word has its same root in like, it, like it's the same word for a, a woman's womb. Think about that for a second. Like a, that's the same word, this mercifulness. It's like a mother's womb, how a parent feels about her child. Moms in here, I think you experientially know this womb-like compassion and mercy for your kids more than anyone, this deep love for a child that you formed, you birthed, and you walked with as you've raised them to maturity, and whatever season they walked through in their life, whether it was just like destruction or goodness, whatever that was, I don't, I have no, I don't, I'm not a mom, I don't have this experience today, but I've, I've watched my wife do this, I've watched other people ahead of her do this, where it's like regardless of the circumstances, there's this compassion and this mercy because they're their kids, Right? This is how God feels towards us. Mercy is synonymous with compassion, grace, and pity. They carry this concern of empathetic feeling for another person in the scriptures. It refers to a divine or human gracious act that helps people in need. Mercy isn't just pity. Pity is, I'm so sorry, I feel so bad for you. But mercy is compassion and action. Mercy helps, comes alongside. God does not just pity his fallen creation, right? But God steps in to help redeem his creation. Mercy and compassion are most perfectly demonstrated and characterized by God's own covenantal mercy and loving care for his people, in particular through the gift of Jesus the Messiah. So God is merciful. Second, Jesus is merciful. He's merciful with Peter who denies him. He's merciful to Mary Magdalene. He's merciful to Matthew who's writing these words, who is a traitor tax collector. He's merciful to the woman at the well who lives in shame. Jesus on the cross, when he's being crucified by his people, crucified by the Roman government, what does he pray? Does he pray, God get him, right? Now he he prays something else. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is merciful. The only people Jesus is not merciful to are people who are unmerciful, right? The religious elite who are unmerciful to others. There's such a danger, my friends, in being unmerciful. Why? Because it's so unlike God. It's so unlike God. Why this like spiritual pride of withholding mercy is so dangerous to those who claim the mercy of Jesus on our lives. We cannot say or sing about or rejoice in the mercy of God and at the same time refuse to extend it to others. We do not deserve this gift. But it's a gift that we receive, and in giving it away, we receive it again and again. Jesus often teaches about this, and truthfully, it's difficult to understand. So um, let me say it this way, and then we'll look at a parable of Jesus to kind of just like, what does this look like? What does giving mercy look like? So let me say it this way, and we'll look at Jesus' words. Uh, Next slide. Jordan, there you go. You can't give away a divine gift that you have not first received. And you can't retain that divine gift unless you're willing to give it away. say it again. You can't give away a divine gift that you've not first received, and you can't retain that gift from God if you're not willing to give it away. I can't truly give you God-like mercy if I haven't received and rested in God's mercy on my life. Friends, like, I'm a screw-up like no duh, but, but really I'm a screw up. Um, my family it will be the first to tell you this. There's like, there's selfishness in my heart. There's pride in my heart. There's like this laziness that just wants to be like served in my heart. There's like lustful desires in my heart. There's like ways that like, I just don't, I just don't even want to serve right now. Like the selfishness, like I recognize that in myself. And just to be clear, like I'm in deep need of God's daily mercy. Yeah, sure, we're pastors, but like, deep need of God's mercy on my life. But if I receive that mercy from God in spite of myself and one of you does something to royally hurt me or does something unbecoming and I'm tempted to withhold mercy from you, there's something really wrong. I can't find rest in God's mercy if I'm unwilling to extend it to you if you do me wrong. We know this, but how many of us know it's really hard to practice this? Really hard. Jesus will say this, next slide, Jordan. Jesus will say this in Matthew 6, verse 14 through 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Like, yikes, right? Some weight on it. Next verse, verse 25. Later in Matthew, he'll say this. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. There seems to be this pattern, a way it works, where this relationship between how we receive grace, forgiveness, and mercy, and the way we extend grace, forgiveness, and mercy towards others. They're connected in some ways. Author and theologian Frederick Bachner says this. we be on the screen. Jesus is not saying that God's forgiveness is conditional upon our forgiving others, right? It's kind of, it's kind of the worry. Is God's, is God's forgiveness conditional? Because if so, if I don't forgive then I've never experienced the forgiveness of God, this is what he says. Forgiveness that's conditional isn't really forgiveness at all. And in the second place, our unforgiveness is among those things that we need to have God forgive us the most. What Jesus apparently is saying is that the pride that keeps us from forgiving is the same pride that keeps us from accepting forgiveness. And I love this end. And will God please help us do something about it? Right? It's like this pride blocks the forgiveness. The pride that we hold that, that gives it away almost blocks the forgiveness of God. Let's get a glimpse of this. Turn to your Bibles to Matthew 18. This will be the last passage we're in today. Matthew 18, verse 21 through 35. A famous parable Jesus teaches is called the parable of the unmerciful servant. Once you're there, we'll read together. Okay. Verse 21, here's the context. Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother and sister who sinned against me? how many times? I think he gets a little cocky here. Seven times, right? Seven times? Look how good. like that's a lot, Jesus. What does Jesus say? I tell you, verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus answered, I tell you, sorry, Jesus answered not seven times, but 77 times. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and he began the settlement. And a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. I did the, like the little research on that, that's $7 billion in our time. Too much, right? It's like, it's like, it's astronomical. It's being like facetious. This is a hyperbole. 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Get this, verse 26. At this, the servant fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. No, you can't, right? Seven billion dollars. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. 28, but when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. It's like four months wages, $10,000, $7 10,000. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. Just grab that image in your mind for a second. The servant begins to choke the other servant. Choking him saying, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you. And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how, Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And we hit Jesus's words again and we go, goodness, right? It takes away the like, like this, it's like these are hard teachings of Jesus. The story reminds us that God's mercy and forgiveness comes entirely as a gift of love and mercy. It has nothing to do with what we do or what we don't do. It's just mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. That's what mercy is, not giving it what we deserve. Grace is giving us something we do not deserve. This is what we have received from God. It's a gift. And so often, like the unmerciful servant, it's very hard for us to let go of the throat of someone who's harmed us, someone who's let us down, and to show mercy and forgiveness. My friends, we cannot, we cannot get in mercy where mercy doesn't go out. It's the outgoing mercy from within us, from the heart that extends to other, that we receive the mercy from other people and the mercy from God. Let me be clear. It's, it's unmerited. It's nothing we earn from God. But if you can't give away a divine gift that you first received, then you can't retain the divine gift that you're unwilling to give away. We are judged according to the mercy, the, the proportion of mercy that we give others. If we give little mercy... When you find yourself in need of mercy, we get little back. The standard we set is the standard we get. Do you want God's mercy? I do, and I need it. How difficult is it for us to extend mercy? We'll end with this a little spiritual practice for the week. Mercy means that we no longer constantly condemn or judge everybody's large or tiny failures foolish decisions, or bad behavior. We will never do this perfectly. But by God's grace, I think we can do it better. Mercy is a discipline. It's a practice. And here's how we start. Because I I suspect that even as we talk about this and we read this parable, when I'm reading this parable this week, the Spirit just kept bringing to mind all the people that I still have my hand on the throat, right? Right? And I would suspect that as we think and talk about this, that there's people in your life that are like that. It's very difficult to show mercy towards, where you hit those questions of like, well, how, how long do I show mercy? How many, just like Peter, how many times do I forgive, Lord? And these are the difficult things as we walk the way of Jesus, but by his spirit, he empowers us to do this. And we remember and we rest that we have been forgiven much, shown so much mercy that it's through that experience and power that we can actually begin to practice this discipline of showing mercy. I want to propose this morning that the only way to learn how to be merciful is to experience God's mercy. You can't do it on your own. It's a supernatural thing, and we need the work of the Spirit to do it. We fall into the depths of the mercy of God, and in the depths of that mercy, we experience a God, as Thomas Merton said, is mercy inside of mercy, inside of mercy. This is who God is that we rest in. So I wanna introduce a spiritual practice for this week. I wanna teach you a prayer that has been so helpful to so many brothers and sisters in Christ to root themselves in the mercy and the presence of God. It's a simple prayer called the Jesus prayer. Has anybody heard it before? The Jesus prayer, if you haven't, we're gonna learn it today. The Jesus prayer is like this, it's on the screen. Put it up there, Jordan, for me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me as sinner. That's it. It's short, it's impactful. It's a prayer that starts in our head and then walks down into our soul as we savor each word. Lord, Jesus, Christ, have mercy. It descends from our head into our heart and we practice this prayer. It becomes almost this like second nature instinct. Almost think of it like an operating system. An operating system that grounds yourself in moment by moment in this gift of God, which is his mercy. When you can't find the words to pray, These words already exist within you. And we learn to seek God's mercy and to become people saturated with mercy because it's only when we rest in God's mercy that we can rightly give it away. So can we say this prayer together? And we'll talk through each word. Let's say it together. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's talk through this prayer a little bit. This prayer goes back to the Desert Fathers in the fourth and fifth centuries. And the church has been praying this prayer ever since, 1,500, 1,600 years. It's a gift. Especially in the Eastern Orthodox tr- Christian tradition, this prayer is helpful to pray, and I even think it helps understand what Paul means when he says pray without ceasing. Right? I always think, like, that's impossible. And then when I, when I was learning this, I was like, oh, this is possible. To pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This prayer comes straight from Scripture. Go to the next slide, Jordan. Um, go back one. Is the Philippians 2 not up there? There it is. Therefore God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And so we start the prayer with Lord. This isn't Jesus, my buddy language, right? This is power and authority. He is Lord, king over every person, government, power, authority. In the first century context, in Roman context, they would proclaim that Caesar is Lord. This is a political declaration. My allegiance is to Jesus, Lord. And we start that way. We put ourselves under the kingship of Jesus. Lord Jesus, Son of God, When we say son of God, we are drawn back into Trinitarian love. At the center of the universe in everything is a father loving the son, pouring out his spirit. Remember Jesus' baptism? Jesus comes out of the water. What happens? The Holy Spirit as a dove comes and rests on him. You hear the voice from heaven. This is my son who I am well pleased. Jesus is anointed Messiah The Father speaks over him, and we speak Jesus as the Son of God. We point towards his Father, and the Spirit embraces our prayer. The Jesus prayer is not only Christ-centered, but it's Trinitarian. Do you see that? When we say, Son of God, it's Trinitarian. And as we are in Christ, we abide in him, we participate in this like cosmic, eternal, Trinitarian love, and then we beautifully cry for help. Have mercy on me. It's a cry for help, a cry for deliverance. How many like we just need daily help from God? Like you find yourself parenting this week and you're like, Jesus, have mercy on me, right? Or you're at work this week and it's difficult. Jesus, have mercy on me. Or you're walking through relational conflict and Jesus have mercy on me. Help, Jesus. We're not on our own, guys. Jesus, his presence is with us. Have mercy. This comes right from the parable that Luke shared last week, I'm sorry, Nick shared last week from Luke 18. Go up there in the slide. We'll just read the parable real fast. Two men went up to the temple to pray and one Pharisee and another a tax collector. You remember the story? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, get this, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other people. Be like me coming up, I'm like, thank I'm not like you. I'm thankful I'm not like you and you those robbers and evildoers and adulterers and even like that tax collector in the back over there. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. We laugh at this guy. I laugh at this guy, but I do it, right? I'm, I'm, I thank God I'm not like that person. That is a messed up life if I've seen one. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he just his breast. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell, this is Jesus saying this, I tell you, rather than the other, that man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And clearly, Jesus is exalting the humility of the tax collector. And that, in a sense, is this prayer, God, come to my rescue. I'm a son and a daughter of you, yes, but I need your help. It's a cry for mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A simple prayer, but do you see the density of it? Some people get hung up on the word sinner. We have a robust New Testament theology that once you put your faith in Jesus, you are no longer a sinner, you are a saint. You are a holy one. The old man has been buried in the grave of your baptism and you were raised to new life in Christ, right? This is an undeniable aspect of like the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in every single apprentice of Jesus. Like that's who we are. And I deeply connect with the word sinner. Yes, in Christ we are made new. My identity is as a son or a son and daughter of God, but in the now and not yet kingdom reality, I'm a saint who is in continued need of God's mercy as I like, veer from my identity in God and gratify the works of the flesh, as Paul would say. And I need God's mercy on me as a sinner to connect me back to who Christ says that I am. Jesus, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. And we still need that, don't we, daily. What is most helpful about this prayer is that it gives me words when I don't know what to pray. It lodges in our mind, and when you wake up in the morning, you can say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. If I'm worried about the day, it's a pause and recognizing God's presence and saying, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's this gift of a prayer practice. It's a re centering prayer in the presence of Jesus, and even the prayer becomes shorter and it still encompasses the latter. Like, Lord, have mercy on me. Christ, have mercy or just simply Jesus. Jesus. It's a spiritual practice to receive the mercy of God, but like we've seen today, we can't just receive it, but we've got to give it away. And in the posture of receiving mercy, we are people who extend mercy. It's who we want to be as Riverway. It's who we want to be as a church. Jesus says at the end of his Sermon on the Mount that we're going to hit again, that the people who obey his commands are like people who build their house on a rock, right? And we want this house. like That's not just about you individually. That's about the body of Christ. We want this house to be a house that's like a shelter from the storm that comes. Jesus says the storm comes and the house built on sand, great is the fall. But the house built on a rock stands. And so as a house that we're building, mercy needs to be a marker of the people of God. When people walk in, often they don't go, hey, where can I get some mercy? I'm gonna need of some mercy. People usually don't go like, hey, let's go to the church and find that. They should, and we wanna be that. A house of mercy, a shelter from the storm. Who is God inviting right now? You to show mercy to. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Lord Jesus, Son of God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. When we want to blame, have mercy. When the quickest response is to shame and condemn, my friends, have mercy. When you can criticize, instead have mercy. When you find yourself in a political disagreement, have mercy. When you find yourself in a theological disagreement, have mercy. When you were certain you were absolutely right, have mercy. When you could get the revenge you wanted or you could get even, have mercy. So that when you pray, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, there will be a large reservoir of mercy from God to draw from. pray. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us. And we just ask for that mercy. We thank you that you give it freely. Even as we just look just briefly through Exodus, that that is even the way you reveal yourself. It's your name. That's who you are. And so we come to you like, God, that's who you said you are. You are merciful. You are compassionate. And so we rest in that this morning. And we say, have mercy on us. And we don't say it because we, we think you lack it. or you, But it's like we say it to step back into that eternal flow of mercy that you give out because it's just who you are. And so, Jesus, we thank you for that this morning. And I pray, God, that you would help us like release our hands from the necks of those in our hearts that we have just like, I can't have mercy anymore or I'm out. And God, would you just empower us by your spirit to again show mercy, to again show compassion. As we build a house around you, Jesus, and your teachings may like the support beams of that be like grace and mercy and forgiveness, because we've experienced it, and we have tasted your goodness and God. so how can we shut it up within ourselves? But teach us again, God, to show mercy. Teach us again, God, to trust you. We're just so thankful. Thank you for the word that we get to open up, that it points us to you, Jesus, that it brings us back into communion with you. We love you and we pray, amen. We're gonna go into a time of response. Um, We're gonna take the bread and cup together. Receiving the bread and cup helps us return to Christ over and over. No matter what else happens in our gatherings, we return to the central practice of the presence of God every week. If we are lamenting in a gathering, we bring our brokenness to the presence of Christ. If we hear good news of the kingdom, we bring our joy to the presence of Christ. We always return to his presence. Instead of getting stuck in like um, concepts or information that are shared during a sermon or a teaching or a spiritual practice, even we accept the invitation to bring whatever we're holding to the presence of the one who calls us. Receiving the bread and cups, some call it communion, our common union with God, with the Trinity. Other traditions call it the Eucharist, which literally means Thanksgiving. It's a feast of Thanksgiving that launches us into this week, into the world. Or we simply call it the bread and cup. Reminding us of the simple roots where Jesus took the bread and he took the cup of wine. The night of Passover, he was crucified and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. Take it in remembrance of me. Receiving the bread and cup every week. Listen, guys, it transforms us and we can be truly humble and receive the mercy of God. Remember, we never take communion. We never take the bread and cup it can only be received. Ian Moore and once said, taking is what happens in the Garden of Eden. But opening our hands and receiving will put the world back together. And so we receive communion today. Um, Would you stand as we get ready to sing? Maybe just in a time of just listening with hands open, like Sarah invited us um, earlier, just like these hands open as just kind of the band gets ready to worship. Would you just like, Listen to what the Lord has to say for us through, that, through the teaching today as we take communion. And we'll invite you after um, just like one song to come up and grab the elements. If you grab the elements, uh, don't take them yet. We'll take them together. But let's just spend some time in prayer listening and then we'll sing together.